You know, it was about nine years ago when everybody was talking about a miracle, and the miracle was the miracle on the Hudson. I mean, it's hard to forget the images that, that we saw on TV. In fact, they even made a movie out of that uh, heroic uh, rescue. Uh, because of a bird strike, the airline lost complete uh, power of its engines, couldn't go back to LaGuardia Airport, so uh, Captain Sully made this emergency landing on the water and uh, was able to save all of the passengers and all of the crew. And it, was, it, it, it had to be a miracle uh, to, to have landed on the water like that in such a phenomenal way. But recently there was a tragedy that took place on the Hudson, you may have heard about that a couple of months ago. It was a helicopter that actually went down and five of the passengers perished in that uh, helicopter ride. Uh, the ironic thing about it is, the, is that all of the safety features that were supposed to save lives actually worked against saving lives. For example, the fuel shutoff valve was accidentally turned on during the flight, which caused the helicopter to make an emergency landing. The flotation devices, I guess you could still see that uh, they inflated improperly, and as a result of that, it tipped the helicopter over on its side. It was supposed to keep it from sinking, but it tipped it over on its side, and it, and it was able to just uh, get all that rushing water into the helicopter. There was a harness, uh, a protection on the open a door of the helicopter for the safety of the passengers, and that only proved to trap the five passengers who were in the helicopter. And instead of saving lives, those safety features actually worked against them and did just the exact opposite. And here's my application of that, that, that when it comes to the next life, when it comes to eternal life, lots of people put safety, what they believe to be safety features in effect. And what they don't realize is that it is working in the same way, exactly opposite of saving lives. It's costing lives. And, and here's what, what I mean by that. <clears throat> there, are, <clears throat> excuse me, there are many people who, who feel about themselves that they're a good person. Uh, they've never committed a crime. They don't have a felony record or even a misdemeanor record or even a traffic violation. They, they, they may have been born into a religious family. They may attend religious services, give to charity. They may live by the golden rule of, of, of doing to others what you would want them to do to you. But what they don't realize is that their goodness is not and will never be good enough. And because of that, they're in danger because they're trusting in their goodness. The only safety feature that is worth placing our trust in is in a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come to seek and save the lost, who knew that we weren't good enough, but that he would be good enough for us. And so what we need is the gift of being made right with God through faith in Christ. Here's a, here's a, 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 a statement that I, <clears throat> I want you to see, that this personal achievement and our, and, our, and our human accomplishments could never take away our sin or our guilt that's associated with our sin. We need something greater than human performance. And like those safety measures, all of the things that we put in place that we think are going to help us really are going against us. You see, self-righteousness or one's personal goodness leads to disaster. 
in the same way that I use this illustration. Trusting in personal performance is spiritual blindness because you don't understand just your relationship to God. You, don't, you, you believe that your goodness is good enough. And as a result of that, it's spiritual blindness. There, there's nothing that can take the place of a savior. It's like the song goes, we need a hero. And that hero is Jesus. And that's the one I want to talk to you about this morning. In relationship to the healing of a man who was born blind. And I'm going to draw some parallels today. Clearly, one of the most remarkable miracles recorded uh, in the Gospels, maybe only second to the raising of Lazarus from the grave. The receiving of this miracle by this blind man was more than a demonstration of the power of Christ. It was a display of his sovereign grace and his loving kindness. And you know what? That, that's a message of hope for every single one of us. If you're not a follower of Christ, we're truly grateful that you're here and, and our heart's desire is that you would come to see the great worth that we've placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, who is a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost everyone who comes unto God through him. You know, his opponents sought to defame the name of Jesus by, by accusing him of being the friend of sinners. But we view that title of friend of sinners as being of great comfort to us who know that we're not good enough. So let's think about the healing of this man who was born blind. Jesus comes across him. He's blind from birth. He comes into the world the same way that we all come into this world, only he never saw the smiling face of his mother or his father. Never saw a sunrise, never saw a sunset. He could feel the warmth of the sun on his skin, but he has no idea what sunlight looks like. His world is utterly and complete darkness. And the giving of sight is such a remarkable miracle to one who is born blind because from the beginning of the world, no one had ever opened up the eyes of one born blind. And the recovery of sight is, is one of the most frequently mentioned miracles in particular in the Gospels. There's at least five or six uh, individual people who receive recovery of sight, but there is a world of difference between recovering sight and giving sight or creating sight in one who had never seen before. I mean, you could see the difference. But what is most intriguing about this story as we get into it is the backstory. It's, it's the events that took place just moments before Jesus in John chapter 9 meets this man who had been born blind. And what we're going to see is this contrast. Now, now, let me just say this. If you were a jeweler and you wanted to display a, a, a beautiful gem or a diamond, and you wanted to just show off its brightness and its color, you would set it against something of a dark background. Well, this miracle is set against the dark background of the human heart, of those who were self-righteous, those who thought that they were good enough and, and, and I've been thinking about this term ever since I started looking at this message, is that these men were blinded by the darkness. These men were blind, and I'll explain a little bit more about that, how that the darkness actually enters into the human heart. Why? Because self-righteousness is spiritual blindness. Now, let's first begin by looking at chapter 9. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to work my way backward. I want to read a few verses, and then I'm going to work my way backward in the story to show you the, 
the, the backdrop of, of this amazing miracle. And what we're going to see is a contrast. Contrast between darkness and light, between the hostility toward God or toward Christ and the unconditional love of a Savior. So John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Now, Jesus, would, he knew all things. He didn't need men to tell him what was in the heart of men, and, and he probably had a word of knowledge knowing that this man had been blind from birth. But the disciples also knew, and they said, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? Now, it may have been that this man was so familiar in the community that everyone knew that he had been born blind. And they asked him the question, was this man born blind because of his sins or his parents' sins? And Jesus says it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so that the power of God could be revealed through him. And then Jesus gives this, what appears to be a little cryptic. He says, we must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us because the night is coming when no one can work. And what I think Jesus was talking about there was that his mission was soon coming to an end. He was, he was going to leave when, when all had been accomplished and he was going to go back to heaven. But he says, while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. By the way, in chapter 8, he also revealed himself as the light of the world. And, and, and also now in chapter 9, he says, once again, I am the light of the world. Now, I want you to notice these next two verses. There is no word coming yet from this man. This man has not cried out. This blind man has not cried out. He's not heard Jesus passing by. And he's cried out, as others did in the past, for mercy. Jesus you know, have, have mercy on the son of David. N none of that. And so it says this, then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So the man went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. He went, he washed, and he came back seeing. What an incredible miracle. Could you imagine what it would be like from darkness into light? And then now you could see everything, really, for the first time. It would be like us being, being transported to another planet and seeing things we've never seen before. And how amazing would that be? And this man now, he sees blue skies and puffy white clouds and green trees. And then the creme de la creme, he sees Jesus face to face. I have to ask the question, well, what did he see when he looked into the eyes of Jesus? What did he see when he looked at Jesus? I tell you what, as a believer, I know for me and I know for many others as well, one of the greatest desires we have is that one day we will see Jesus. We will see him as, as he is, scars and all, which are the trophies of his, of his battle and his accomplishments at the cross. But the only thing is that, that none of the gospel writers ever described the physical appearance of Jesus. Did you ever stop and think about that? Um, in our world, physical appearance has such an important part. I mean, it, it, it is such a, a normal thing to talk about or think about. But there's no description of Jesus other than maybe a, an obscure verse found in the book of Isaiah some 750 years before, which Isaiah said he was despised and rejected of men. There was no beauty that we should desire him. 
It wasn't, it wasn't his blonde hair and blue eyes that attracted people to him. Or in our day, it wasn't his blue hair and brown eyes that would have attracted people. No, it was, it was, it was the love that Jesus Christ emanated from his person that attracted people to him. Yet that desire to see Jesus is imprinted in our spiritual DNA, isn't it? I mean, if you're a believer, don't you want to see Jesus? And right now, the only way that my soul, your soul, can be satisfied with, with the desire to see Jesus is when we see him in the pages of Scripture. When, when he reveals himself as the light of the world or the, the lion of the tribe of Judah or the, or, the, or the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There are so many sketches in the Scripture that describe to us the nature of the one whom we call Savior. I don't know, maybe you, you, you've, you've seen the film, uh, I Can Only Imagine. Let me just ask you, have you seen the film? Yeah, a number of you have, right? Do, do you know the lyric? It, it, it really began as a song and then it became a film, but, but I love the lyrics. L listen to what it, it gives this, this longing to see Jesus. It says, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I think our experience, if it's going to be anything like that of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, we will fall at his feet, speechless, in adoration, and, that, and, and in appreciation for all that Jesus has done for us, especially when we see scars that are the wounds of his victory. In John chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have this amazing contrast. And like, like I said, what we will see is light and darkness, hostility and the love of Christ. In John chapter 8, Jesus is despised by his opponents. His adversaries are constantly in his face trying to trap Jesus, to defame him, to discredit him, to, to point to the people, don't follow him, he's a, he's a fraud. And so what they do is they come up with a, with a conundrum. They come up with a, a strategy to entrap Jesus. There's no way he's going to get out of this one. And so they drag a woman, maybe only wearing a bed sheet, and the crowd quickly gathers together to participate in her execution. You see, she's been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. The man suspiciously absent. And what they do... <clears throat> I mean, I've got to ask the, the first question is, was this just a setup to defame Jesus? And the answer is, yes, it was. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were constantly trying to challenge Jesus. They did not want this man to rule over them as Messiah. So in verse 5, they quote the law of Moses, and they say, Moses has given us the law that she should be put to death, but what do you say, Jesus? See, now, if Jesus said, let her go, you know, have mercy on us. They would accuse him of dishonoring the law, of being soft on sin, and of violating his own teaching, which is that he had not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. If, on the other hand, Jesus said, said you know, gave them leave to go ahead and, and stone her, they would accuse him of hypocrisy, because Jesus had also gone on record as saying, the Son of God was sent into the world not to condemn sinners, but to save sinners. And so either way, they felt that the trap was set. You know, when you are spiritually blind by your own self-righteousness, 
it will prevent you from seeing the majesty of the one with whom they were speaking. But Jesus neither condemns nor condones the woman's actions. Instead, Jesus turns the tables over on them, and you probably have heard the story. He says, let the, let the one who's without sin be the first one to cast a stone. And like an arrow piercing their conscience, from the oldest to the youngest, I love that, from the oldest to the youngest, thinking about their past history, they drop their stones and they leave. And Jesus is left standing alone with this woman. And so he says to her, woman, where are they that accuse you? And she says, there, there are none, Lord. And you know, this is so important about the law. <clears throat> it was required that there would be two eyewitnesses before an indictment could be established. And since there were no witnesses, there's no indictment. There's no accusation. And Jesus says, then neither will I condemn you. Go and don't sin anymore. Now, Jesus expresses his attitude towards sin. Go and don't sin anymore. But he also demonstrates a mercy that triumphs over judgment. Now, I, I, I can't tell you about what happened to this woman the rest of her life. I don't know. But I have a feeling that someday I'll meet her in heaven. And, and, and I'll say, oh, yeah, you were that woman that I preached about on that Sunday morning. You see, how do I know that? I, I just know that intuitively because it is the goodness of God that brings about change in our lives. When God reveals his goodness to us, that is the greatest motivation for transformation. So the religious leaders, they just outright now in chapter 8 begin to attack Jesus. They call him a liar. They said he was demon-possessed. And they said, you're an illegitimate son. You, you, you were born out of wedlock in an effort to try to discredit the rumors about his virgin birth. And the hostility reaches a fever pitch by the end of chapter 8 where they just pick up stones and they're going to kill Jesus right there on the spot. But Jesus evades that, slips away from that, as he did on other occasions because that's not his destiny. The cross is his destiny. That's the ugly backdrop of these so-called good men. And it only gets uglier and it only gets more violent as you go further into the gospel. That's the setting, that's the backdrop of this miracle. Jesus came to help the helpless. He came to give hope to the hopeless. He came to give sight to those that are spiritually blind. You know, it's a wonder God the Father didn't break heaven's silence in that moment and say, enough, enough is enough. Son, come back home. But he didn't call his son back home. And Jesus didn't turn his back on the human race. Even though he was, he was treated terribly and dishonored in such a, a way that it, 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 it did not cause him to retreat from men. Why? Because God is the God of all grace. And Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. You know, grace shines the brightest under the the backdrop of a world in darkness, under the control of the prince of the power of darkness. That's why we need to be rescued. But what I want you to know about grace is that grace is not a right that men are entitled to. If it was, then it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be a gift. Grace 
is not something that we are entitled to as if it was compensation for God allowing man to fall into sin. If that were the case, then grace would neither be amazing nor would it be free. What makes grace so amazing is that it is utterly undeserved. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I want you to realize it was because God revealed to you two great things. Number one, you're not good enough. And number two, Jesus is perfect. And he could be your goodness. His, his accomplishments, his, his achievements can be ascribed to you through faith in Christ as the substitute for sin and the substitute for righteousness. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is despised and rejected. But in John chapter 9, he is received and he is worshipped. In John chapter 8, Jesus uh, is, is hid from those who say they can see. But in John chapter 9, he is revealed to one who could not see. In John chapter 8, we see men at their worst. But in John chapter 9, we see Jesus at his best. You know, all of us have been born spiritually blind. And the question is, why? Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't illuminate our understanding. It darkened it. Adam didn't become as wise as his creator. He became as depraved as his tempter. And as a result of that, our understanding became darkened. The darkness literally entered into the heart of the human family. And even though there was only Adam and Eve at that time, it begins with the head of the species. Our understanding became darkened. And that's why we need, we need to have God turn on our understanding or our sight, our spiritual sight, to see that God is good and that he is great and that he is full of unconditional love. So in John chapter 9, Jesus sees a man born blind. The man didn't see him. He couldn't see him. But neither did the man call out to Jesus as on other occasions, men did cry out to Jesus for mercy. So, so Jesus here has taken the initiative. It's Jesus who came to seek this man. I don't know about you, but I know that's true of me. I was not seeking him. He sought me. It wasn't me that first loved him. It was, it was he that first loved me. And as a result of that, that is grace that hunts us down and chases us. You know, put yourself in this, in this blind man's place for a moment. Th think about what your world would be like in utter darkness. You, you have no way of supporting yourself. The, the only option for you is to beg for, for, for a, a coin or two from, tr from people that might have compassion upon you. Some days you get nothing. Some days you have nothing. You have nothing to eat, nothing to drink. Your, your world is, is filled with sorrow, suffering. Think about it. It is a suffering and a sorrow that all we mankind own. And the reason why we own that is because of the fall that turned paradise into a wilderness. That is the truth. Now, I'll tell you what, if that sounds like a raw deal, I mean, why should, why should we all suffer because of the actions of one man? Think about that. It doesn't sound fair, right? Why should we all suffer because of... Adam's disobedience and his rebellion. The fact of the matter is that that's true, that, that sin is passed upon all men, for, for all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And if you think that that's unfair or that somehow it's, it's unkind of God to allow guilt to pass upon you because, because of the actions of one man, then what I want you to see and what you don't understand is that God deals with the whole human race on the basis of two men, on the actions of two men. The one man, Adam, and in Adam all died, but in Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who gave himself as a substitute for our sins, that all that are in Christ shall all be made alive. So that if you're tempted to believe that God isn't fair, it wasn't fair that the Son of God being perfectly innocent, harmless, loving, should be tortured, put to death, put in a grave. But it happened, and it happened so that it might accomplish our salvation. That's the reason why we, we could be saved. Had Jesus never stepped out of heaven, we would be hopeless and without God. This blind man is the essence of helplessness. And you know what? So am I. And so are you, if you're honest with yourself. We are helpless in being able to reverse our sin, or we're helpless in, in our ability to, to rid ourselves of guilt and the sense of condemnation that we have because we have failed. All of us have come short of the glory of God. In chapter 8, we see sin for what it is. It's hostility toward God. It's enmity toward God. And all of us have that in our heart at some time. But Jesus, in John chapter 9, is a Savior who won't back down from loving us. Tom Petty sings a song, or he sang a song, uh, you can stand me up at the gates of hell and I won't back down. That statement was never more true of Jesus. And I believe that even now the Spirit of Christ stands at the gates of hell to prevent you and me from going in that direction. Jesus was never overwhelmed or overcome by, by all that he suffered to the point where, where it prevented him from acting in, in, in to the needs of, of us. And, and that is our greatest need to being made right with God. You know, physical blindness is, is tragic. But greater is a spiritual blindness of heart. Imagine not being able to see your need of a Savior. Believe me, I've spoken to people and I've, and I've shared the gospel with them. And, and one of the greatest things that's ever offended or hurt my heart is when they would say something like, I don't need it. It's okay for you. I don't need it. No, we all need a Savior. Imagine being on the edge of eternity and, and not have, having the assurance that your sins have been forgiven. That's tragic. That's truly frightening to face a, an eternity without God in, in utter darkness. Words can't describe that. I can only imagine. But thank God Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. And I got to tell you something. It wasn't just his mission. It's his passion. It's the, it's the delight of his heart to seek and to save those that are lost. And he's still doing it today. Why? Because greater than the creation of the universe, and this universe is amazing, right? But greater than the creation of the universe, you know what? It costs God nothing to create. He spoke it into existence. But when it came to salvation, which is the far greater work, it cost God everything. It cost him his son. And therefore, it is greater. 
So let's just say this about this blind man, and we'll move on. What, what an unorthodox way to bring, to bring healing to someone, to put mud in their eyes. Jesus, you could spit on me anytime. Now, I'm, I, I'm, I'm legally blind in one eye. I've been that way since birth. Jesus, you could spit and put mud on my eye anytime you want. But I got to tell you this, that this is an unorthodox way of bringing about. I mean, if you want somebody to prevent them from seeing, put mud on their eyes. And so there's got to be something more here that Jesus is revealing. Is, is Jesus giving us a throwback to Genesis chapter 2 where, 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 where the creator took the mud from the ground and he fashioned it into a man and then he, he, he breathed into him the breath of life? And isn't this just a reminder that this is the one by whom all things were created and for him and that he is before all things? That's who we're dealing with here. It's, he's, a, he's fully man, but he's also fully God who has come to rescue us from ourselves. And so he says, go and wash. And the man doesn't argue. He doesn't, he doesn't complain. He doesn't uh, offer a, 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 an objection. He simply goes. He, does, he, does, he takes three steps. He, he believes. He receives. And... Uh, he, he obeys. He believes, he receives, and he obeys. Those are the steps that we must take if we want to our names written in the Lamb's book of life. These two chapters are a wake-up call for anyone who hears the gospel to teach them two things. Number one, you're not good enough. I don't care how good you are. You're not good enough. And number two, there is one who is absolutely perfect. And here comes Jesus who hasn't responded to cries, but who, who initiates the coming. And so grace comes and seeks us and pursues us until we come into a relationship with Christ. This is sovereign grace. This is grace reaching us in the depths of our darkness. There must have been something so compelling in the voice of Jesus that, that made this man go. Maybe, he's, maybe he walked, he stumbled, he fell, and, and yet he, he washed and he came back seeing I believe there's something so compelling in the Word of God. It's the Word of God that is alive and powerful. You know, faith doesn't come because of a miracle. Faith comes by hearing the words of Jesus. And they are so compelling even today. I want to kind of close with this. Kind of to, to follow up on that illustration that I used in the beginning when we talked about the helicopter and we talked about the uh, false sense of security that people had by those security uh, measures that fail. Uh, I, said, I said this in the first service. I said, uh, the, the tire company is Breakstone. But I said, what was that, honey, what was that other company I said? Bri I said, you know, it's Bridgestone. But I said, I said Breakstone. I must have been hungry. Thinking about, you know, baked potatoes and sour cream, you know, one of my favorites. But anyway, it's the Bridgestone Tire Company. And they, and they produce this new technology, and they've got a tire that they call Drive Guard. I mean, e even the name, the title sounds like, well, if I had that on my car, I'll be safe, right? In fact, they promise that even if your tire is damaged and you have a puncture in your tire, you can drive an additional 50 miles before the tire goes completely flat. Now, that might sound like a, a good deal 
But you know what? If you're riding down the highway 50, 60 miles an hour, and you don't even know that you have a flat, to me, that's not a sense of security. That, 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 that's a sense that that thing may go out any moment. I mean, maybe you just passed your 50, 50th mile, and maybe you're just going around a sharp turn, and maybe, maybe what has been promised as a safety measure is not going to hold up at all. And maybe people who put their trust in religion and maybe people who put their trust in their own moral excellence are putting their trust in something that is not going to hold in the final analysis. You see, the, the thing is you can be traveling down the road at those high speeds and, and not even know that your tire is about to go flat. And, and, and if you've ever had a, a blowout or a flat tire while you're driving at a high rate of speed, you know how dangerous that can be. Trusting in human performance creates a false sense of security. And I just wonder how many people will be shocked in that day to realize they've been riding on a flat when they stand before God. What they need is a Savior, one who is holy, who is sinless, and who loves unconditionally, who paid the price, the ultimate price for their salvation. In the beginning of this message, I said self-righteousness leads to disaster. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus Christ, God's gift of righteousness, leads to life. In the beginning of this message, I said if you're trusting in personal performance, that's spiritual blindness. However, if you're trusting in the finished work of Christ, that's spiritual sight. Your eyes have been opened to see the truth. One last scripture says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That is one of the clearest verses of Scripture concerning the, the manner in which we are transformed. We become new creations in Christ by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Christ, I want to give you that opportunity. And right after we sing this, this last song, I'm going to ask the worship team to start to come on back. But I want to pray for everyone first who is a follower of Christ. And this is my prayer for you. Oh God, I pray that we who have been saved would come to realize how amazing how amazing grace is that we would never lose the, the wonder of it all, that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world, that you revealed to us two great things. We're not good enough, but that Jesus Christ is. And I pray that we will never lose the gratitude through the trials that we face, through the difficulties that we some, through the, even the sorrows that we sometimes are impacted by, that we will never lose that sense that our names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that you have chosen us. We did not choose you. You chose us. 